Good evening. Tonight we uh, will be discussing the Pashat Hashavua of Bo. It is the third Pashat in Exodus. And in fact, within this Pashat, we have included the actual Exodus of the Jews from Egypt. While the two previous Pashiot, meaning Shemot and Bo, and Va'ed, I'm sorry, also include ideas that, that pertain to the actual Exodus, but the physical, the physical Exodus from Egypt took place in this Pasha. And there are many, many questions that uh, we're going to raise tonight concerning the Exodus. It's not as simple as we think. And certainly according to Rabbi Shimon, what is literally written in the Torah usually does not even indicate anything that's close or resembles what actually took place. So anyone just reading the Pasha or making an attempt to understand it can't and will not understand anything that is included in this Pasha. There is much that is included in this Pasha that has already been uh, dealt with in cassettes and in some of the uh, publishings, and so I'm not going to <coughs> repeat uh, everything that is of significance in this Pasha. I'm going to add some of the ideas that I have not incorporated in any of the other publications. What is of course significant, and that is the first verse in Pasha, Bo, which is chapter 10, and begins with verse 1, where it says, Vayom Hashem el Moshe, Bo el Paro, come to Paro. And if I was to read the, the uh, translation, it says, go unto Pharaoh. And anyone who knows Hebrew knows that the word Bo means come. It does not mean go. But since there is no explanation, a corruption or an attempt to understand what is written is even flagrantly distorted when it says go. And bo does not mean go. Lech is the word for, bo, uh, for go, not bo. And so we have already explained that, and this is the theme of the whole Pasha, that when it says bo al paro, Moshe is being told that the physical world that we observe, the physical world that we observe, is one of total illusion. The physicist today comes to that conclusion. The world that we experience today, sickness that we experience today, accidents that we experience today are all illusions. And yet, who in his right mind is going to deal with sickness as a form of illusion? Sickness is something very real. Yesterday, a person could walk. Yesterday a person felt good and today he experiences pain and he can't walk. Now why is that considered an illusion? That's very real. But from this verse we learn, which again I say physicists also agree, while they may not understand how they can consider uh, matters that pertain to the physical existence is an illusion, is an illusion, and so it's not only Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that says this world is an illusion, all that is physical around us is an illusion. The physicists also agree to that principle, that this world, as we see it, as we feel it with the five senses, is an illusion. Why? Because it says, Bo el paro. In other words, the real world 
the 99% of existence is in the metaphysical realm. The realm that we can't see. The realm that we can't observe. And if we want to think twice about what is being said by Rabbi Shimon, we can understand that when a doctor deals, let's say, with cancer, when does he deal with the cancer? When it appears. Ask the doctor, when did it begin? What will he tell you? Oh, it may have started 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or maybe even 20 years ago. What the doctor observes 20 years later is already the manifestation. But they all agree that it begins on a level that we can't see it. It is non, not observable. So where is, where is the sickness of cancer? And that's one of the reasons they cannot and have not dealt with the sickness or the illness or the disease is because they don't know from where does it originate. Because for them, it originates long before the eye could observe it. So if we want to stop for a moment and consider everything around us, we will take notice that we really have no control over most of the things that occur in our daily life because things that ultimately affect us began long before we could even observe it. So there's another realm, there's another area of things that begin to happen and take place. Going on this premise that the real world is the world we do not see, so how can we know that it exists? And how could we know how to deal with that kind of world if we can't observe it? But it still says Bo El Paro, what Moshe was being told by the Lord was if we want to defeat Paro, and we know that Paro was the embodiment of all evil, all evil in the whole world. What do you mean by evil? Not being bad, but all evil, meaning disease, sickness, accidents, anything that constituted evil, Pharaoh, Paro, embodied that kind of evil. And so we are taught, according to the Mishimon, that when Hashem told Moshe, Bo El Paro, he was saying, if you want to deal with anything in your life, you have to deal with it at its source. So Moshe, you will have to come up into the world of the metaphysical realm, the world that is unseen, the world that the eye can't see. And there, and only there, will we be able to deal with Paro. Because on this level, as, as the case of cancer, you can't eradicate it. You can't. You have to go somewhere else to find where the cure will be. And that's what Moshe was told by the Lord. If we want to defeat Paro, come with me. And where is the Lord? The Lord is not a, a physical entity. He is something in the metaphysical realm. So he was calling Moshe to come to the realm of the metaphysical world because only over there can we deal with Paro and can we deal with his ultimate with his ultimate doing away with. In that same Pasuk it says because I have hardened his heart and also the heart of his servants, in order that I, I'm just going to translate, uh, that I might show thee my signs in the midst of them. Signs. And the Ari, in Pashat Bo, asks a very obvious and simple question. And I will read it, because we know that by reading the Zohar, or reading uh, the uh, words of the Yadi, we are making a connection immediately to the reality realm. So that we, when we hear the answers, and we hear the discussions of Rabbi Shimon or the Yadi, we will now be 
addressing ourselves on another level of consciousness. That is the purpose of reading the Zohar and reading Kitfayadi. This is the shortest method, the quickest method, by which we can achieve an old state of consciousness. Now, we may not be conscious of it, or we may be conscious of it. Sometimes you are conscious of it by saying, well, I heard some words of the Ari, I didn't understand the word he said, but somehow I feel a little better. This is what the reading of the Zohar and the Ari and writings of the Ari accomplish for us. So the Ari says, and I will read, Yesh show we should ask, Shehaya lo lamar, lama shiti makotai ele bekirbo. Why does it say my signs? What are signs? Signs mean anything. A sign is a sign on the road. A sign is someone who calls somebody, gives him a sign with a certain, uh, <coughs> with a certain reflection of his fingers or his eyes. That's signs. But actually what the Shem is telling Moshe is he wants to tell him about the forthcoming makot, the forthcoming plagues that he's going to bring on Paro. So why does it say, asks the Yari, ototai, elebikibo. And then it also says, my ele, ototai ele, these, these, why these? Just say that I'm going to continue to bring some more plagues on Pharaoh. And the Ari goes into a very long discourse. But in Kabbalah we learn how to observe the meaning of the internal and hidden meaning of the Pasuk. The word ototai meaning my signs, is actually, actually, the origin of this word, ototai, comes from the word ot. That's simple. Ot in Hebrew means letter. It means letter. When we read in the creation of the world, the fourth day of creation, if you recall, on the fourth day, what does it say? In the fourth day of creation. In uh, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Lord said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from night. And let there be for signs. Again, lo'otot. Signs. What signs? Does he mean a doorpost sign? A road sign? What sign is he talking about? And there, too, the Zohar says, otot doesn't mean signs. Because if you know a little Hebrew, then there's another word for signs. Shelet is a word for signs. You want to put up shelatim, you put up signs. A store puts up a sign on a building. Someone will put up a large neon sign so he can advertise himself. Is this what the Torah is talking about? Signs? No, says Rabbi Shimon. The word otot means what it means. And when you learn Kabbalah, you cannot change any of the literal meanings of the words because you don't understand what it means. Therefore, ototai means Letters, says the Ari. It means letters. What is so significant about the letters? Because we can ask another question. What is this book, the second book of Moses called? Shmot. Shmot. Why is it called Sefer Shemot? Because the second word in the beginning of book two of the five books of Moses, over there it says, Ve'ilu Shemot B'nei Yisrael. These are the names of the children of Israel. What does the names of the children of Israel have to do with Exodus? This whole book 
is called the book of Exodus. What is its Hebrew name? Shemot. How does Shemot come to mean Exodus? Obviously, it doesn't have any connection at all with the idea of Exodus. And just because the first verse in the book of Exodus is talking about these are the names of the children of Israel and then it tells us Ruben, Shimon, Levi, Yudah and all the other people that came to Egypt. These are the names of the people who came to Egypt but what does that have to do with Exodus? And the answer is very simple. Just like we have learned that in Pashad B'Shalach, at the splitting of the Dead Sea, uh, Red Sea, we have learned, and I don't want to delve into that again, but the Jews were taught what we learn is the power of the 72 names. The power of the 72 names. This is all familiar, I'm sure, to most of you, and if it's not, then I urge you to look at it. These are the 72 names. Alright? 72 names. What does it mean, 72 names? These are names that are made up, that are made up of the Hebrew letters. Are made up of the Hebrew letters. And we have learned, and we have learned, and many of our discussions are in Kabbalah, that it is only by making use of these names or making use of the Hebrew alphabet, can one come into control of his life, can one come into control of healing, and one can come into control of anything that exists on this physical level. But he must make use of the alphabet. Without making use of the alphabet, he has absolutely no control, and then he is left to what I always like to say is whether you're lucky or you're unlucky like most people say. And we know that, and all physicians have to agree to that, there's no, there's no conflict. Uh, two people, two people having the same condition, one recovers and one doesn't. They do not know why. Or one is given, uh, both two people are given the same treatment. One recovers and one does not. They don't know why. And we ask, why? And so we say it has much to do with other factors which are not, which are not observable. It has to do with the particular months that people are vulnerable. We know there are three bad months in the year. Bad months. What do you mean bad months? It means when negative energy, when negative energy reigns, reigns in this world. And so people become vulnerable. On those particular months, if you don't know how to watch yourself, negative energy attaches to you. If you don't know how to prevent that negative energy from attacking you, then you get sick, you have accidents. There's nothing you can do. The only way, says Rabbi Shimon, that we can protect ourselves against negative energy intelligence, and this is the only explanation the only explanation that can provide for us why one person gets sick and another doesn't for no apparent reason. No reason. He suddenly developed this or he developed that. And so everyone says he's lucky or unlucky. According to Kabbalah, there is no such thing as being lucky or unlucky. If you are vulnerable, meaning you have been exposed to the unseen influences of negative energy, then it is not that you are unlucky, you were exposed to it. The other person was not exposed to it. To prevent exposure to unseen negative influences is only through the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It is our only method by which we can avoid or prevent all of the things that happen to many, many people in this world. When we asked what is so significant about Shemot, 
names? And what is the connection to Exodus? Because what is freedom? We think freedom meant they went out of Egypt. But if we read, if we read carefully, the whole book of Shemot and the whole book of Numbers, Bamidbah, we will know and observe one idea. That idea was that the Jews, the Jews always regretted leaving Egypt. If you go right through the whole Exodus, they always regretted leaving Egypt. We here are supposed to celebrate this great exodus of the Jews from Egypt. And yet those same people that never wanted to leave Egypt. So what is this exodus all about? It's almost like a fraud. It's almost like the Torah or Judaism wants to convince us that look at the great miracle of Passover that the Jews left Egypt. But if you read the Torah itself, you will find they never wanted to leave Egypt in the first place. So what is this, some kind of a game? That either God plays with us, or the Torah plays with us? The answer is, it had nothing to do with those Jews who left Egypt. What happened at the time of Exodus was that for the first time in history, in human history, humankind, mankind, and the Jews in particular, were given the first opportunity to be able to take control over their lives. If we are to ask 99 and 9 tenths percent of the people, do you have control over your life? And of course we are talking about illness, accidents, and many other things that have to do with control, the answer will be in 99 and 9 tenths percent of the cases, we do not have any control. And not, there is, and not that there is anyone who feels he does have control. For the first time, we were given the opportunity to take control. That is called exodus. That is called freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from uncertainty, Freedom means that you have control over your life. This is what happened. Whether the Jews wanted to leave or whether they didn't want to leave had nothing to do with the book of Exodus. It was a story that is completely concealed. Had they left or they didn't leave, we might say, did it make any difference? Yes, it did make a difference. What was the difference? The Jews could never leave Egypt. Number one, they were not deserving of leaving Egypt, according to the Zohar. They were not deserving. Number two, they never wanted to leave. However, because of the power of Egypt that we said, what was Egypt? What was so significant, says the Zohar, of Egypt? What was so important about Egypt, over and above all the other nations? Because Egypt embodied, Egypt included all that was evil. And so the book of Exodus was to teach the Jew and the whole world how we can take control over evil, over Egypt. That was the study of Exodus. This whole business of the plagues, of the leaving of Egypt, the splitting of the Red Sea was not for the Jew. Then, it was the teachings that were going to help all of mankind, whether they were at the time of the Exodus or they would come at some future date, they were provided with the system by which we can always enjoy freedom. And freedom is not something that many people enjoy or many people can even feel that they have a little grasp on feeling free. So why is this called Shemot? It comes from the word Shemot, names, that's right. What names? 72 names that I just enumerated that we use 
for certain things, whether it's healing, whether it's to overcome evil, whether it's to create a security shield around us so that evil doesn't penetrate when times are vulnerable, like in Tevet, like in the month of Capricorn, or in the month of Leo, or in the month of uh, Cancer. And it is not by chance that the name Cancer was chosen to be the name Cancer. Why Cancer? Why give it, why give that month such a dreadful name, Cancer? Today, if you speak to <coughs> informative physicians, because not all doctors are informed, but let's say those that are informed, they will tell you that the biggest problem that the patient has if he has been told that he has cancer is the fear that he has an enemy within him and that this enemy is eating him up every single day. He's living with his enemy. Where is his enemy? Bikirbo. Not somewhere there. This enemy is right there within him. It's true for most other things. But in cancer, they say, this is the most, uh, let's say, the most negative aspect of the disease. And that's why there can be no improvement unless we invade the body. We invade, and I use that word, invade the body with other harmful substances, thinking that with negativity we can destroy negativity. And they didn't learn the single cardinal rule in this universe. That you don't take darkness and and try to remove darkness from a room. It never worked. It never worked. Take a, take a, a gun or take a cannon. Shoot darkness. Everyone would laugh. And yet that's the way we treat things around us. That is the way we treat evil around us. If you strike a match, a little, a little pu'ula, a little activity of striking a match and the, and the darkness disappears. It doesn't require invasion of darkness. Insert a little light. No more darkness. So what doctors say, and they have found in cancer patients, is the fear that they have bikirbo within them, within them. When, it's, when we ask, why does it say, in order that I have created all of these conditions, lemashiti ototai ele bikirbo, and not makot, because we have learned in history, and the Lord already knew that, What was significant in Egypt was not the fact that their makot, or the plagues, were being forced upon the Egyptians. You know what happened every time there was a plague and it disappeared? What happened? They refused to let the Jews go again. Pharaoh didn't let the Jews go out. And you know, when someone conquers, a nation conquers another nation of people, they never really conquer those people. By force, you do not conquer people. Even Israel thought at one time, by conquering the land of Israel with its inhabitants, they would control the Arabs. They have found that you do not control. You do not control those people. You control them by force, but it doesn't mean you control Control is not something, and this was not the significance in Egypt, that we control the Egyptians. No. Therefore, it doesn't say makot, because the fact that they were suffering, the fact that the Egyptians were suffering, was not going to be the reason that they would recognize that there is a Lord. 
because she says all the time throughout the makot, he wants to bring them to the realization that there is a God, that they are not the force, the Egyptians are not the force, but that there is a God. And we know by Yosef, as the Ari, in his lengthy uh, dissertation on this one verse, brings in the dreams of Joseph, where it says that Joseph was telling Pharaoh that you understand Elohim. But I'm coming from another space, which is the Lord, which is your Kevavke. The significance of the whole Exodus was that they observed that the Jew was separated from all that was happening. This, as we will learn shortly, plague of the locusts did not affect the Jews. The plague, the plague of blood did not affect the Jews. All of the other plagues did not affect the Jews. This made a significant impression on the Egyptian. The fact that he would have been slaughtered, the fact that he would have been persecuted, would not have made any impression. Those are things that come and go. You do not capture, you never capture, by force, any force, never, never. You do not capture or remove darkness by force. You create light. What they observed, that there was a secret here that the Jews had, that brought about a condition that they were not affected by everything that the Egyptians were affected. They were not affected by the locusts. They were not affected by the blood. Their water was water. That same water, the moment that the Jew would give a cup of water to an Egyptian, that water turned into blood. That water turned into blood. What's happening? This already was a phenomena that they could not understand. How was it done? How was it done? Because everything that was evil was prevented from entering into the realm of what was called the Jew. His water could not become contaminated. It was his water, it could not become contaminated because there was a security shield around. How was all that accomplished? By the Shemot, by the names, by the 72 names. Names. So we now have a reason why it does not say Makot, because the study and the teachings of Kabbalah, and certainly of the Torah itself, according to Rabbi Shimon, and the Ari, is the reason it doesn't say, in order that I, you know why I'm hardening the heart of Pharaoh and his children, and his uh, slaves, and his servants, is because I shall put my signs, but it doesn't mean signs, I shall put my letters and this will put the fear in him because he will now understand that there is something that is beyond his control that where formerly he controlled the whole world according to the Zohar suddenly here he has absolutely no control over the physical universe the physical universe was where his control existed suddenly he has no control the water turns into blood, it remained blood. He had no control up until this period of the Exodus. Evil control with the beginning and the advent of the Exodus, control of evil came to an end. That meant when you could create the security shield that the Jews did, only then, only then, were the Jews in a position, and Pharaoh then understood that there was something more than Elohim. There is a force. 
because we learn in Kabbalah, according to the Ari, at least it's very clear, that there is no such thing as darkness because it's an illusion. But what do you mean? When there's no lights and it's nighttime, there's darkness. That darkness, for some, is darkness. And there are others who can see through that darkness. One of the plagues, incidentally, was darkness. Why was that the plague just before the main plague? We'll come to that condition too. Why darkness? Why darkness? What was so significant about darkness? But in any event, at least we have now somewhat of an answer why it says ototai. So the cardinal lesson of Exodus is the letters, the names. This is what is called Exodus. Nothing else is called freedom. Freedom can never be achieved by the domination of one nation over another. According to the Zohar, who in last week's Pasha, meaning Pasha Be'era, explained why, why did and why will the Muslims, Ishmael, Rule Israel for 400 years. Now, of course, you know the Zohar was written 2,000 years ago. And he wrote that before the Jews come into control of Israel again, the last body of people that will control that place, which is the center of energy in the world, will be the nation of Yishmael. And 400 years... And he explains why 400 years. And was is it 400 years since 1967? The answer is approximately. We can't say exactly, but approximately 400 years before. Around 1550, 1540 is when the rule of the Muslim came over Egypt the beginning of the Ottoman Empire, which ruled approximately 400 years. Now, we are not historians, and we are not interested in history, because history, you know, never teaches anyone. History should be a good teacher, but it's not a teacher. We never learn from our mistakes. Nations do not learn that war does not succeed in achieving anything. We don't learn from history. But the reason we are making the point of 400 years is first of all to indicate that how did Rabbi Shimon know and write in the Zohar that the that Yishmael, the Arabs, would rule 400 years. And so he says, very briefly, because this is not the, the uh, subject that we want to <coughs> delve on, is that 400 years, Yishmael came to the Lord and said, why is Isaac and his children different than I? I was circumcised and he was circumcised. Why is Ishmael, me, not considered on the same basis? Why is the nation of Israel, meaning the children of Isaac, promised this land of Israel and not me? I am a son of Abraham and Isaac is a son of Abraham. Why and for what reason should Yishmael be the ruler? He, for 400 years, says the Zohar, complained about this to the Creator. And so, says the Zohar briefly, and I don't want to delve on it, but just to give you an idea of how deep the Zohar concentrates on, on what is really going on in our physical world. It is not that we say the physical world is illusion and therefore don't deal with it. This is not what Kabbalah is saying. Kabbalah is saying that the world has illusion and know how to deal with it. But no, it's illusion. It is not something of a permanent nature, not something of a permanent nature and something that you can control because it's not permanent. 
It's not Nitzchi, it's not eternal. Therefore he ruled 400 years. Therefore he ruled 400 years. Then says the Zohar, what happens afterwards? He will create some kind of battles that we experience, but then he will leave Israel. And he explains it like when you have crumbs on the tablecloth and you want to remove the crumbs, you just give it a little shake. Not a great deal of effort to shake your tablecloth and have the crumbs removed from the tablecloth. Because the Zohar says it will not be force that is going to remove Yishmael because not because he is Yishmael, not because we were promised Israel and not him, and therefore let's fight about it, but because he can't handle, he can't be a channel for the kind of energy that goes out from Jerusalem and goes out from Israel. Not because he is something of not to be considered, he is an animal, or he is nothing, but he doesn't belong, not because... He is not worthy, but because of his composite energy, is not commensurate, is not reconcilable with Israel. But again, what the Zohar draws from this idea of Yishmael, that force, force, physical force, does not conquer. Force, physical force, does not rule, does not remove. What does? The force. The light. Or the tetragrammaton. The Yudke Bafke. It was the force that Pharaoh recognized. That he had no control over. Because Elohim also has two parts. There's Elohim and then there is Elohim Acherim. Then there are other gods. In other words, that level of consciousness of Elohim was where Pharaoh could control. The level of Yudke Vavke, there he had no dominion. Why did he have any dominion? Because with the letters, the Shemot, and the power of the Alephet, this created a security shield. That what was the security shield? The force, the tetragrammet now would rule. There's no room. You're not vulnerable anymore. There's no room for evil. And whatever evil means, come in. <coughs> Therefore, it says, in him. That fear, that fear was what made Pharaoh understand that there was something else going on. The fear that there was another force that was not a force that would destroy him. <laughs> Therefore, it doesn't say makot. It wasn't the makot. It wasn't the plagues that God felt could take the Jews out of Egypt. Or it wasn't the Makot that the that Pharaoh and all of his nation would feel we are no longer in control. Not the beatings. Beatings maybe sometimes even strengthen people. But it was the names, the Shemot. In this same Pasha, just a few a few verses further, it says that Hashem told Moshe that I'm going to add some more of these so-called plagues. And then it says, and it does not say what Moshe was told. Remember I said it says, Vayom Hashem el Moshe, Boel Paro. Go tell Pharaoh. Now, if you don't look clear, closely at the at the verses here, you will not take notice that you know that the Lord did not tell Moshe what plague he was going to bring on the Egyptians. And all of the commentators asked that question: Why didn't the Lord tell Moshe what plague? Because it says, "By Yavo Moshe Aaron, Two verses later, in verse three. And they told him, until when are you going to 
be stubborn and not let the Jews out, for you shall know, it does not say anywhere, it does not say anywhere, that God told <coughs> Moses that he was going to bring the plague of Arbe, Arbe meaning locusts, on the nation of, on the Egyptian nation. It doesn't say nowhere. And they all struggled with this idea. Why, why didn't, uh, why didn't Moshe, or why didn't the Lord tell Moshe? And then he goes and tells him about the locust. And what's the conversation? Let's listen to the conversation. And he tells him that it's going to destroy everything. Everything. First of all, you won't be able to see the earth. You won't be able to see the earth. And it's going to eat up all of the vegetation that grows from the field. And they walked away, it says. And then they were brought back by to Paro. And Paro finally says to them, you know what? Who do you want to go out? Miva mihahochim. Who are those that you want me to release? Remember, in these few verses, it's saying, if, if Moses is saying to Pharaoh, let the people go. Let them go. He says, now who do you want me to let go? What does Moshe say? Moshe in verse 9, Binarenu, Uviskanenu, the young, the old, we want to take our sons and our daughters, <laughs> our sheep, and all of our flock. We want to go and make a celebration to God. doesn't say that before. He didn't tell him about making a holiday. Now he's telling him about making a holiday. And what is Pharaoh's response in verse 10? Do you think I will permit your request? I would let everybody go, but not the little children. Lokein, l'chul nahak vadim, Take out the elder people. <coughs> the older people. Let them leave. Nobody else. And he threw them out. Now, again, logically, you know, Pharaoh is at a disadvantage. He has, has already suffered. He has already suffered many plagues. Is he in control? Now he's saying, yes, I'll let the, all the people go, but not the children. And then I might as well tell you that it says later, he calls him back again. He says, okay, you can take everybody. He says, what else do you want? He says, I need sheep. We have to make sacrifices. He says, oh, no, that I'm not going to let. Is that logical? I mean, if the man is already agreeing that they have to leave, I mean, I will say not the flock, not the children. Doesn't he realize that he's not in control? Why is he, what is this discourse of the Torah? Remember, the Torah, we assume, is, is a very important document. It's telling us some, what we consider to be an idiotic conversation. Pharaoh suddenly says, no, you know, he's not in control, but he's not going to dictate the terms by which the Jews will leave Egypt. That's no logic. It has no logic. And then he tells him what's going to happen and so forth. We ask again to repeat the question. It does not say, it is not mentioned anywhere that God told Moshe to go tell Pharaoh that I'm going to bring the plague of locusts upon the Egyptians. It doesn't say. How did Moses know? How did Moses know that he meant the plague of locusts? Some say that he was told, but it doesn't say. In other words, there was a private conversation, not recorded in the Torah, not recorded, but that he understood that the next plague would have to be the plague of the locust. (laughs) 
I, again, don't want to delve into all that has been discussed before concerning uh, the, uh, the plague and freedom of Passover. But the holiday of, of Pesach revolves around what? Matzot. Matzot. What is matzah? It comes from wheat. It comes from wheat. And we understand that the reason the Jew did not permit bread to rise is because they were, what we call in Kabbalah, making an attempt, making an attempt to restrict the desire to receive. Because there is nothing in this world that, that expands by itself expands. We know that if you put out a piece of meat several days, what happens to the piece of meat? Shrinks. We know if you leave water in a glass several days, it evaporates. We know that if you leave a piece of iron in, uh, somewhere where it can disintegrate, things do not expand. <laughs> things do not get bigger by its natural consequence. The only the only entity in this universe that expands by itself is bread. Bread. Therefore, the whole idea of matzah was because the desire to receive always expands in a person. He never stops thinking of what he needs and what he wants. That comes natural to everyone. You don't need a particular force to remind you of what, what else you need. We always naturally are thinking and are consumed and always involved with what tomorrow has to bring for us. So the whole idea of matzah is wheat, that which grows from the ground. When Moshe when Hashem, well, let's say Hashem told Moshe Bo El Paro, when it said Bo El Paro, there was the answer. There was the answer. He was telling him what came next. How was he telling him what came next? Because we learned already Bo El Paro doesn't mean go to Pharaoh, but come up. Come up with me, and I'll show you how we can control. How we can control. Control what? We say that the root of all evil in the world is a desire to receive for oneself alone. In fact, the desire to receive is what makes people move. People want something. They have to go get it. They have to work for it. Whatever. But it's the desire to receive. It is not evil by itself. The desire to receive for oneself alone when it's by itself or when you desire only for oneself, like bread, it does not require any assistance. It is by itself alone. It is the only power that can expand by itself. That's the power of desire to receive. No one has to tell me that tomorrow I need bread on the table. The body speaks by itself, alone. It does not need any support from anybody to tell me that tomorrow I need clothing or tomorrow I need food, tomorrow I need water. Needs, necessities, desires are like bread. It comes by itself. It expands by itself. When Hashem finally said to Moshe, Bo el paro, now we are going to confront paro. What is paro? Says the Zohar. Paro is the epitome of the desire to receive. He says there is only one way we are going to defeat Paro. How will, how will we accomplish that? If we can put a control of the desire to receive, of the desire to receive on ourselves, <coughs> on the Jews, by removing everything that the, Jew, that the Egyptian held in high esteem. What was that? The power of earth. What is the power of earth? Gravitation. You ask a child of six, what is the power of, 
of earth pulls to itself. Power of earth. It's a power. Can you see it? No. Can you feel it? No. Only that if you try walking out of a, build, of a window 84 stories high, you know that you're going to go down. You're going to meet earth. Because earth is going to drag you to itself. The power of desire to receive for itself alone. Therefore, for the first time, everything that came from the ground, everything that emerged from the ground would come to an end. When he said Bo El Paro, he understood. And when he was telling the Egyptians that we are now coming to the area where you will see by yourself what these signs are all about. It all leads up to one thing. The destruction of the desire to receive for oneself alone because that was the power of the Egyptian. That is the way they controlled <coughs> the whole world. How did they control the whole world? Mummification. What was mummification? They knew how to preserve a body. They knew the power of how to preserve what? What is the power of the body as opposed to the body, power of the soul? The soul has a desire to share. What is the power of the body? One thing. Me. That is what forces us. Day in and day out. It's an expansion. The body is powerful. They could preserve a body. It would never die. From the Exodus on, it died. No nation in the world, not even the Egyptians, from the time of Exodus, could ever create mummification of bodies. It was over with. It was destroyed. When this locust came, that was the end. When the locust came, what did it do? It destroyed every aspect of the desire to receive. <coughs> every aspect. That's when his power was broken. That's when his power was broken, and that was demonstrated by destroying everything that emerged from the ground. The ground no longer was a force. For whom? The Egyptians. What about the Jews? <coughs> Desire to receive is not evil. Desire to receive for oneself alone is evil. Not desire to receive. So immediately in the words of Bo El Paro, that was the beginning and end of Paro. He says, let's go up to Paro, the force of Paro. What is the force of Paro? Desire to receive, we'll wipe it out. And, and to make it manifest, first they accomplished it on the upper level. Then, on this 1% illusionary level, along came the locust and finished off the job. But the job was finished before. It's like we said in cancer. When it comes out already, there's a problem. Can it be prevented before? Yes. And if we want to know when the Torah, when Abraham Avinu called the month of Tammuz cancer, Sartan, couldn't he call it another name? It shouldn't sound so terrible. Why does he give it a name, Sartan? Because Avram Avinu knew that in this month, in this month, the beginning of cancer takes place. When? Will we see it? No. 15 years before it's discovered, 20 years, maybe 25 years. But when did it begin? Which month did it begin? It began in the month of Sartan. This is the teachings of Kabbalah to bring us this knowledge. Because if you don't have the knowledge, if you don't know where it begins, you don't know what it is, then what are you going to fight? With force? You can't take away darkness by force. Therefore, chemotherapy and radiation and all of these invasions by force, we learn from the Torah that it is not force that wipes out force. It is light that can remove negativity, but not force. Now, what about light? Of course, that is the force. Light is not a battle between light and darkness. When there's light, there's no more darkness. You don't have to tell the darkness to disappear. In wherever light is, because light is all over. Light is all over. When we say we put on the lights and the room is now lit up, it is only illuminating the light that was there before the darkness occurred. All right, we'll have a short break before we continue.